Last week, we began our study of Romans in chapter 1, and there the Apostle Paul makes the point that humanity is sinful, and that sin is both deliberate and inexcusable. What's more, we saw that God is justifiably angry about sin. Uh, Essentially, we were talking about our sin and God's wrath. If you weren't here last week, you're probably thinking, whew, glad I missed that one. But we can't start talking about the solution until we have understood the problem. In the simplest possible terms, humanity is sinful and sin leads to death. Romans 6.23 puts it another way. It says the wages of sin is death. This in itself is a sticking point for many people who ask why that should be the case. Why does sin have to lead to death? Well, uh, that's a big subject in itself, but I think there are three quick answers that we uh, could give. Firstly, punishment. Uh, God is just, and justice demands that offenders are punished. Some people disagree with that, but what would you think of a judge who continually let off rapists and murderers? A judge who said, it's okay, it doesn't matter, you're pardoned, off you go. I suspect you'd want to see that person removed from his position as judge. Jesus himself spoke about punishment. In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about those who show charity and those who do not. And in verse 46, he, he says of those who, uh, or, or the latter, uh, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, we might debate what the words eternal punishment uh, actually mean, but there's no getting away from the fact that sin deserves to be punished. Uh, secondly, sin leads to death because of alienation. Colossians 1.21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Sin separates us from God. Uh, when we sin, we are walking away from God. You can't be embraced by someone if you're walking away from them. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, God says to the Israelites, I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. God created the universe. He sustains all life. And one day he will renew and restore creation. We cannot turn our back on God, deliberately alienate ourselves from him, and expect to live forever. To reject God is to reject life. Thirdly, sin leads to death so as to maintain the integrity of creation. Romans 8.22 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Human sin spoils creation as a whole. Again, it would be deeply troubling if those who were actively working against the goodness of God's creation were allowed to live forever. The wages of sin is death. That is uh, the problem that Paul seeks to address in this letter. It's not the only theme in the letter, uh, but it's uh, one of the main ones. But you know, a Jew reading Romans 1 might assume that Paul is talking about the sin and subsequent punishment of the Gentiles, the uh, non-Jews, the pagans. They might think, well, yes, of course, they're sinful. The pagans are sinful. They deserve death, but not us. We're God's people. 
And so in the section between our reading for last week and this, Paul builds up an argument to convince uh, Jewish readers or Jewish hearers, this letter would have been read uh, to the whole church, uh, to convince them that no one is righteous. No one, neither Jew nor Gentile, can claim a right standing before God on the basis of their national identity, their ethnicity. And the crescendo of Paul's argument goes like this. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so it goes on. But you get the idea. We're all in the same boat, Jews and Gentiles alike. So let's turn to today's reading, which begins like this. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Before we go any further, we need to understand what Paul means by the law. When he talks about the law, he's referring to the moral, ceremonial, and religious behaviors decreed in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Together, those five books make the Torah, which contains the Jewish law. From a Jewish perspective, the way to be right with God was firstly to be Jewish, and secondly, to keep the law. Now, tradition has it that there are 613 rules in the Torah. Of course, the Torah contains the Ten Commandments, which none of us can keep. And then on top of that, there are 600 additional uh, rules relating to every aspect of life. What you could eat, what your clothes were made out of, how to observe religious festivals, and so on. Imagine trying to keep all those rules. But actually, it would be misleading to see the Torah as a comprehensive list of rules dealing with every aspect of life. Actually, many parts of the, of the law are, are, are much more akin to, to case studies or examples. So if this kind of situation occurs, this is the kind of way that you could deal with it. So the law actually covers a, a much broader spectrum of uh, human behavior and experience. Uh, it's much more complicated complex than just a simple set of straight rules. But if you go into any uh, grade one classroom, you'll probably find a list of rules up on the wall. Something like, listen when others are talking, follow directions, keep your hands, feet and objects to yourself, maybe two or three more rules uh, on top. Uh, Never more than about five or six rules. Now imagine a class of 25 five-year-olds and five rules. Do you suppose any of those rules ever get broken? Of course they do, all the time. And Israel had a very comprehensive system of law. Do you think that they kept to it? Do you think they kept the law perfectly all the time? Of course they didn't. It got broken regularly, all the time. That is why they had a sacrificial system, or that is part of the reason why they had a sacrificial system. If an individual or the whole community sinned or transgressed the law, even if it was um, unintentional, uh, you know, not what we would consider sin, but if the law was transgressed, it had to be paid for with blood, an animal's blood. Uh, now, this all sounds a bit strange, but bear with me. The sacrifice I want to draw your attention to is the one that was made once a year for the whole Israelite community on the Day of Atonement. Uh, Rick uh, read about it in Leviticus this morning. And it involved two male goats. 
Uh, One of the goats was sacrificed as a sin offering. In effect, it paid the penalty for for the sin of the community. The other goat, the priest would lay his hands on the head and he'd confess all the Israelites' wrongdoing and that goat would then be taken far away from the Israelite camp out into the wilderness and it would be released. And it would symbolize uh, sin being removed from the community. Now, all of this sounds a bit weird to us and we think, well, how can that system possibly deal with the problem of sin? And the answer is it can't. Hebrews 10.4 is very explicit. It says, it is impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So it's not so much the sacrifice itself, but the attitude of those who were making the sacrifice. Were they truly sorry? Were they repentant? What was going on in their hearts? God always looks at the heart. So why did God give people, his people, the law? which includes the sacrificial system and includes the sin offerings. Why did he give them that if it doesn't lead to a right relationship with him? Two reasons. Firstly, Paul tells us that the law makes us conscious of sin. So the Israelites had the law, it was written down, they knew they weren't keeping it, and therefore they knew they were sinful. But also, the sacrifices that were made as sin offerings point forwards like a big arrow to the cross. Without the law and the sacrificial system that went with it, the Jews, indeed humanity, would not have understood why Jesus died on the cross and how that could possibly make us right with God. And so now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. A right relationship with God is possible And it has nothing to do with keeping the law. It is apart from the law. So what do we know of this righteousness, this prospect of having a right standing before God? Well, our passage tells us quite a lot, but I want to boil it down to four things, and they all begin with the letter A. So the righteousness that Paul speaks of is acquired by faith. It is available to everyone. It is afforded by Jesus, and it affirms God's goodness. First, it's acquired by faith. Verse 22 says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a righteousness, a right relationship with God, for those who can't keep the law. It's a right standing before God for those who are unable, find it impossible to lead a perfectly moral life. That's all of us, by the way. I admit this is counterintuitive. It's hard to believe uh, that we can be right with God, that we can be welcomed into his kingdom, and there's nothing we need to do to earn it. It's not generally how things work, is it? I mean, let's say you hope to study at one of the world's top universities, Oxford, Harvard, Melbourne, and you look into it and you're told that you don't need to show any evidence of previous exam results, uh, nor do you need to sit an interview or an entrance exam, all you need to do is just turn up and you'll get in. So long as you trust the person making the offer. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? On the other hand, uh, perhaps you wouldn't like that. Actually, I think most of us would prefer to think that we'd got into a prestigious university on merit. But we can never enter God's kingdom on merit. 
We cannot be put right with God through our own actions. Even if we dedicate the rest of our lives to praying and reading the Bible and helping the poor, it will not be enough. The prophet Isaiah says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So if someone says, well, you know, I just don't think I'm good enough. My response would be, you're far, far worse than you think. (laughs) We're not put right with God on account of the fact that we are good. We are not good. This righteousness, this right relationship with God is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And those words, to all who believe, bring us to our next point. This righteousness is available to everyone. Paul continues, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, this is clearly aimed uh, principally at the Jews whose national identity was worn like a badge of honor, a badge that identified them as God's chosen people. As far as the Jews were concerned, they were right with God, and the, uh, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, everybody else were not. Paul is basically saying, being Jewish and keeping the law won't help you. Your situation is no different from that of the Gentiles. Nobody is included in God's kingdom or excluded on the basis of their national identity, their ethnicity, or their race. And as we've already seen, nobody can be included in God's kingdom because they're a good person, nor can anyone be excluded on the grounds that they are too sinful. Inclusion is based on whether or not we put our faith in Jesus Christ. I really don't think God could have made it any easier for us to be saved. Imagine two aviators in a small plane, and they're flying a routine flight, and all of a sudden, something goes wrong, both engines cut out, and they find themselves plummeting towards the ground. And one turns to the other and says, well, I'll be okay, I'm the pilot. You're just a co-pilot. Of course, that would be a ludicrous thing to say. They're both in exactly the same situation. And the only thing, the only thing that can help either one of them is a parachute. The plane in that analogy represents life. The impending crash, the just consequence of sin, which is death. The parachute is Jesus. And the pilot is the Jew who thinks he'll be okay on the basis of who he is, on the basis of his national identity. But, you know, sadly, that kind of one-upmanship can find its way into the church. We can look at others and, and think our situation is so much better because of who we are. But the truth is we have absolutely no grounds to think that way. So if a drunken heroin addict, prostitute, come through the door next week, We can just think to ourselves, there is a sinner who needs Jesus, the same as me, the same as me. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Don Carson's words, Paul is talking about the availability of God's righteousness to all human beings without distinction, but on condition of faith. And this is a free gift of grace. But what is grace? 
Well, grace and mercy often get confused. Actually, God offers us both, uh, but there is a difference. Supposing I'm at a train station and I have my bag on the floor next to me, and I happen to notice there's a police officer standing nearby. When all of a sudden someone puts their hand into my bag, they grab my wallet and they try and make off with it. Uh, But luckily, I'm quick enough and I get hold of them and I've apprehended them. Mercy would be not having that person arrested, not repaying the theft of my wallet with the just consequence, that is, being handed over to the policeman. Grace goes further. If I then took that thief out to lunch, I'd be giving him something of value that he didn't deserve. That would be grace. When we put our faith in Jesus, God gives us mercy and grace. He doesn't give us the punishment that we deserve. That is mercy. Instead, he gives us eternal life, treasures in heaven. He adopts us into his family, things that none of us deserve, but are given to us by grace. All are justified, that is made right with God, freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption means to buy back. In Paul's day, you could pay a certain amount of money and buy back a slave's freedom. So you pay the money and the slave goes free. Uh, That was known as redemption. And that is the image that Paul had in mind, that of Jesus buying us back from slavery to sin. And that brings us to our next point. Our righteousness is afforded or given to us by Jesus. Verse 25 continues, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now we see where the day of atonement comes in. You remember the two goats, the one that was sacrificed as a, as a sin offering, a sacrifice that didn't really work, but it points forwards to the cross. The simplest way of putting it is that Jesus took our place. Jesus took our place. Romans 8.3 says that in Jesus, God condemned sin in the flesh. In Jesus, God condemned sin in the flesh. Whose sin? Mine. Whose flesh? His. Jesus has done for us what we could never have done for ourselves. He has paid the penalty for our sins. You could think of it like a debt. In fact, it's another analogy that Paul uses. Uh, We're in debt. We cannot afford to pay the debt. Jesus pays the debt for us, therefore we are debt-free. But I think, again, we can struggle with this. Um, A lot of people don't want help with stuff. Now, if you've ever travelled on the London Underground, you would have seen a lot of people struggling up steps with very heavy suitcases. Now, there was a point when I travel on the tube almost every day, and uh, often I'd stop to offer help to those people who were struggling with their suitcases. And I discovered there were three categories of people. There were those who'd say, oh, thank you. And they'd let you carry their bags, and they'd walk up the steps behind you. Then there were those who would say, Oh, thank you. And they'd let you carry their bags, but they'd try and keep hold of them. And they'd try and lift a little bit themselves, which normally hindered the whole process. And then there were those who'd say, no, thank you, I can manage. And then they'd proceed to give themselves a hernia. (laughs) Which, Which of those are you? If someone offers to carry your bags, which of those do you do? 
Jesus affords our righteousness to us. He does all the work for us on the cross. We cannot carry our load. We cannot help to carry our load. Only Jesus can carry it. Only Jesus can make us right with God. Finally, we see that the righteousness that's given to us affirms God's goodness. So verse 25 in its entirety says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. You know, there's a bit of a question mark over the Old Testament. And it relates to how God could declare sinful men to be righteous and faithful. On what basis was Abraham, Noah, or Enoch right with God? Had God just passed over their sins as if they were of no consequence? If he had, well, that makes God's justice look a bit suspect, doesn't it? As we saw earlier, a judge who keeps pardoning criminals who he knows are guilty wouldn't be a judge for very long. Well, here in verse 25, we have the answer to that dilemma. Effectively, what Paul is saying is that the work of Jesus on the cross goes both ways through time and history. In other words, every person in the history of the world who has been declared righteous by God has been so on the basis of Jesus' sacrificial death. And so the cross shows that God is fully committed to justice and he is fully committed to mercy. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. And here's the crux. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So as to be just. God demonstrates his justice. Sin, all sin, is dealt with. It's not just ignored. Uh, the penalty for sin is paid in full by Jesus. But the same God who deals with sin justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He shows his love, mercy, compassion, and grace by justifying us. You, you might have heard me say it before. Justify means just as if I hadn't sinned. God declares us righteous, not guilty. He adopts us into his family. We don't deserve this. We can't make it happen. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. To be right with God, we need a righteousness that comes from God. A righteousness attained by faith in Jesus. And this is a free gift of grace. It cost us nothing, but it cost Jesus everything. Such is God's love for humanity. And this this message, this truth, this reality, is about as close to the heart of the gospel as we can get. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that all that I've been saying this morning actually is about love. It's about your love for us. It's about your love for humanity. The fact that you don't want us to be separated from you by sin and death, the fact that you've gone to such incredible lengths to find a way for us to get back to you.
And we pray, Lord, that we will never feel that uh, we're deserving of this, that we'll recognize that we are sinful. That's the reality. But that you have done all the work for us on the cross. You have died in our place, leaving us free to have a right relationship with you. We thank you so much for that. And we pray that reality will sink in and that our faith will increase. And likewise, our love for others and for you will increase. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.